Please open your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. You'll find the notes for this morning's message in the bulletin, in the insert. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text of this morning's message on the back of the notes. And this morning, God willing, we'll complete the prologue of John's gospel. We began our study of John seven weeks ago. We did a couple messages of introduction, and we've been working our way slowly through the prologue. It's dense material. I promise you the pace should quicken when we get out of it and get into narrative, God willing, next week. But in the prologue, I've said before, John lays out some of the major themes, some of the major points he wants to address. And in these last few verses, verses 14 to 18, he brings out a huge one. And, and even the last week, we only looked at one verse. We looked at verse 14 because 14 to 18 is a clear unit. We're looking at this in two parts. So I'd like to begin by reading the entirety of the prologue, verses 1 to 18. And then we'll word a prayer and then we'll begin our study. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name is John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Lord God, we pray that as we study these verses, we might be counted as that group who have received your grace, who have seen your glory. So, Lord, I pray that you would open blind eyes in here this morning, unstop deaf ears, 
Replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And Lord, for those of us who you have done this, give us clearer sight. Show us more glory. Give us more grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin this morning by arguing why this chunk is a unit. I think you could divide the prologue into two, maybe three pieces, but verses 14 to 18 would be clearly one unit. Last week, I'll remind you, we returned our attention to the word. The word is introduced in 1.1 and then brought back in verse 14. In 1.1, we're considered what the word, the person of the word was doing, who he was, what he was doing at the beginning of creation. And we find out at the beginning, the word was already being. He was ising, as one of my professors would say. And the word is God's fellow and is equal, and he is with God, distinct from God, yet he is God. And he makes all things. He's the agent of creation in the beginning. And then we learn in verse 14 that this word took on flesh and entered into the created order, really stood with us in the creation, and in doing so enabled us to behold the glory of God in a hitherto not possible way. Um, John says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled, pitched his tent among us. We beheld his glory. And then he describes that glory. Glory, first off, as of a unique or one-of-a-kind son of a father, and a glory that is full of grace and truth. Then we look at John. We'll look at this in a minute. He returns to John. John is interjected as well in the first section in verse 6. But if you pick it up in verse 16, for, that gives us a connection that 16 is connecting to 14. For, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth, look at the end of verse 14, grace and truth. This is why it's one unit. One thought is dominating this section. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. So make no mistake. It can be confusing because John the Baptist in verse 15 gets thrown in. And so you might not see the connection. ESV helpsly puts this in, uh, in brackets. It let us know it's a parenthetical thought. But we're really discussing seeing the words Glory, receiving his grace, and that glory and that grace being typified by grace and truth. Further, the backdrop of this chunk, the Old Testament passage that John is is making connections against, is Exodus 33 and 34. Yes, we will go there again, which is the giving of the law the second time after Moses returned. You remember Moses goes up on the mountain, and there he meets with God, and he spends 30 days there, and when he comes down, the people were worshiping a golden calf, and he breaks the Ten Commandments, and, and he punishes the people. He makes them eat their God. He smashes the golden calf until it's dust and powder, and they have to drink water with it. And the Levites go through from one end of the tribe to the other, cutting down whomever they come across. But then Moses goes back up on the mountain. The Lord gives him another set of Ten Commandments. And Moses asked to see the Lord's glory and he's told, you, you can't see my glory and live. Now, that's the backdrop of this, of this section. So with that, let's begin looking at this first with verse 15, the prophetic witness to Jesus Christ. The prophetic witness to Jesus Christ. John's gospel is interesting in that it 
focuses the attention of John the Baptist, not on the Baptist, but on John the witness. He references baptism in his first encounter, but what gets hit again and again is John was a faithful witness. John was sent to testify, to be a signpost, and he was faithful in that. You look at verse 16. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. And here, four different words for speaking are given to us. ESV only has three, but the Greek, there's literally four, emphasizing that first, John fulfilled his ministry as a witness. The text couldn't be clearer. John bore witness about him and cried out, and the Greek has literally saying, he fulfilled his ministry. And even the quote we get of John, this is interesting, references previous speech of John. So when we actually get, here's what John said, what John said was referencing stuff he said even before. Look at when we see John actually show up in the narrative in verse 19. What's he doing? This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. You get the emphasis? I put it on the wrong syllable, right? Okay. Okay. Um, Are you getting the emphasis? John was a witness. John cried out. He cried out and did not deny. He confessed. He confessed. He did not deny. It seems as though John is, our author, John the gospel writer, is guarding against two errors. One is the potential that some make John out to be greater than he was. We we see the guard. He wasn't the light. He wasn't the light. Here, he confessed the one who came after him is greater than him. In verse 19, he never claimed to be the Christ. He never claimed to be the prophet. So there seems to be some guard against potential sect or group of people who may make John out to be too much. We know in Acts 19, there were at least some disciples who had come out to John's call. Remember, John is out in the wilderness calling people to a baptism of repentance and preparation for the Messiah. And we're going to see in chapter 1 that many who came out to that stayed, hung around, and thus were there when John pointed Jesus out. But others apparently came out and had to go back to their homes, back to their work, before John could specifically point out Jesus. And so all they knew was there's a prophet of God named John. They didn't know about Jesus. So it's possible John is trying to guard against that error. I don't know. But the other thing John the gospel writer wants to make clear is John the Baptist was faithful. John the Baptist did not waver. He did not vacillate. He did not try to take glory that was not his. He was a faithful witness. He fulfilled his ministry. And that's clear here. The stacking up of verbs. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said. He who comes after me ranks before me. So even the quote of John the Baptist we get has John the Baptist referencing prior speech of John the Baptist. And what was it that he said? Point B here. He predicted and magnified Jesus. He predicted and magnified Jesus. John's message was was two parts. Someone's coming. Someone greater than me is coming. Someone more important than me is coming. That's what John the Baptist is confessing. Look at 127. We see him doing this. Look at 126 and 127. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So John was 
absolutely clear on this point. The one coming after him is greater than him. And we understand that some of John's disciples struggled with this. Turn over to chapter 3. In chapter 3, we get this strange, unusual interlude between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. And it's a dispute in verse uh, 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. They're dismayed. They, they are disciples of John, and this other person is getting more people, and people are leaving John's company and John's camp and going to gather with Jesus. And so some of John's disciples are dismayed. John is thrilled. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness. Here we are again. You get the emphatic stacked up testimony of John. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friends of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John wasn't resentful. John wasn't harboring bitterness. He was rejoicing as Jesus' star eclipsed his. He must increase But I must decrease. So in John's gospel, the emphasis is on John the Baptist as a faithful witness. And he was a faithful witness who did not try to steal the limelight. He rejoiced greatly in the bridegroom's prominence. Someone greater than he was coming. And then we get this amazing statement of the deity of Christ out of John the Baptist's mouth. I love this. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, we know that in Jewish thought, the antecedent is usually greater than what follows. Therefore, Abraham is presumed to be greater than his sons. David is presumed to be greater than his sons. And so John the Baptist presumably would be greater than whoever comes after John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, not so. It's exactly the reverse. The one who comes after me is actually before me in rank. Why? Jesus is preeminent because he is preexistent. Jesus is preeminent because he is pre-existent, because he was before me. Even though he comes after me, John says, he pre-exists me, he predates me. John's linking the greatness of Jesus in his pre-existence, in his deity. Remarkably profound understanding of who Jesus was. So verse 15 It's going to set up for us 19 through the rest of chapter 1, which is focused around the camp of John the Baptist as Jesus begins to call his disciples. And we're reminded again that this word who took on flesh is the preexistent God. We're reminded again that John the Baptist was faithful. He, He confessed and did not deny. He didn't try to take the limelight. If there are people trying to make John the Baptist to be greater than Jesus, that was not part of John's program. John the Baptist would be the first one opposed to such an idea. And my goodness, was he faithful? Did he confess? Did he cry out again and again and again and again and again? Which reminds us again that the greatest honor we can ascribe to, we can hope to achieve, is to be faithful lights. Not making much of ourselves, but making much of God, making much of Jesus. John is the greatest man born of woman. And he was just a a signpost 
with reflecting tape on him, so to speak, reflecting back the glory of God. Now, in that extent, he is a light. Jesus in John 5 speaks prominently well of him in this way. In John 5, he, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the light that John was shining was the reflected glory of God. So the prophetic witness of John. You'll notice, by the way, both sections have John the Baptist in them. Both the first 13 verses where John shows up in 6, 7, and 8. Then here in verse 15. And now we get back to verse 16. And notice that verse 16 begins with a 4. At least in the ESV it does. And in the Greek, it's connected. What's, what's being said in 16 connects with what's said in 14. And the last thing said in 14 is, We beheld his glory. And then he describes the glory. It's like glory as the unique, one-of-a-kind son of a proud father. It's that type of glory. And it's a glory characterized by grace and truth. For from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. We're looking at the superior grace of Jesus Christ. The superior grace of Jesus Christ. It's in verse 17 that Jesus is first named in this gospel. Jesus Christ. Superior grace of Jesus Christ. Three points from this first phrase. For from his fullness we've all received. The blank here, grace in place of grace. If you can fit that in. If you can't fit that in, you can write grace replacing grace. I'll get to explain why I say that in a moment. But first, the connection of thought from verse 16 to 14 is that we see his glory in the grace we receive. We see his glory in the grace we receive. And all I'm trying to say is that seeing glory listed in verse 14, and notice it's plural in verse 14, we have seen his glory. And then in verse 16, we all, um, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. They're connected. The seeing of the glory is connected with the receiving of the grace. And the text doesn't tell us if it's cause and effect, if they're correlative, if they're subordinate, but what we know is that he says, we all have seen his glory. And I'll cut out the description of glory for a second. For, because, since, we all, from his fullness, have received grace upon grace. So receiving grace upon grace and seeing his glory are connected. Another way to make that clear is, what is the nature of the grace brought by Jesus? Again, get the contrast out of the way in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, and you get this. For from his fullness we've all received a grace replacing a grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What typified the glory? Grace and truth. We've seen his glory typified by grace and truth. For we've all received grace and truth from Jesus Christ from his fullness. So all I'm trying to make clear here is that the group of those who have seen his glory is the same group as those who have received his grace. And what typifies the glory and what typifies the grace is grace and truth. That that much is all I'm arguing. That we see his glory in the grace we receive. These things are connected. Okay? They're, they're describing each other. One way you can speak of it is I have seen his glory. Another way is I have received his grace. And what typifies both is that they're full of grace and truth. We see his glory in the grace we receive. Next point. Jesus' deity is the fount of this gift. Whatever this gift is that we receive comes from his fullness. Comes from within him. 
He's full, full to overflowing. And that is the source of this gift. This is another reference to his clear deity, his clear deity. For from his fullness we have all received. I'll I'll read a verse to you. Um, Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 2.9 of Colossians. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So when we're referencing his fullness, his deity. The source of this grace is Jesus himself. He's not just a door to the grace. He's not just the means of connection, but he is its source as well. It comes from him. Okay? And then third, and now I'll get to my differing with the ESV's um, text. You'll notice if you have the ESV, there's a footnote, or grace in place of grace. The NIV actually nails this. I was talking with Mike Doty before this. The NIV gets this exactly right. It's the Greek preposition anti, anti, like antipasta, antifreeze. And, and it's, it's, there's a contrast in view. Uh, the ESV's rendering might make you think of a stacking up of grace. Grace on top of grace on top of grace on top of grace. That's not, I think, the idea here. I think there's a clear contrast in view. A grace replacing a grace. A grace is contrasted with another grace. And if you look at verse 17, I think that makes it clear. For, further describing, the law was given through Moses on the one hand. And in contrast to that, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So that's, he's going to give us the contrast, the two graces, a grace replacing a grace. Um, so grace replacing grace. That, that's going to be the idea here. Jesus brings a new and superior grace. This is going to be a major theme in John's gospel. I'll, I'll just point you to some of them. Uh, in John 2, he makes a whip. He drives out the, the people in the temple. They say, what sign do you do to, to, to validate this? He says Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it. See, Jesus' body is the fulfillment of everything the tabernacle and the temple was pointing to. And then in John 3, tells Nicodemus, it's time to be born again, which is, I think, New Covenant language. Then in John chapter 4, with the woman at the well, she's concerned about the right location of worship, which is a legitimate question for her place in redemptive history. But Jesus tells her, woman, I tell you, the time is coming and is now here when that's not going to matter anymore because Jesus is bringing something new. After the Jesus event, after the cross and resurrection, location of worship isn't going to matter anymore. In John 3, Jesus is the serpent on the pole that Moses raised up. In John 6, Jesus is the two true bread from heaven. So John is going to present Jesus again and again, fulfilling, completing, replacing Old Testament pictures, types, laws. And here he sets this up. Jesus, we're going to see in John's gospel, is replacing one grace with another grace. That's one of the things we should be looking for in the gospel, is Jesus replacing a grace with another grace, with a superior grace. So now let's look at verse 17. Verse 17. Where he's going to tell us what he means. He doesn't leave us guessing. For from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's your contrast. The first grace, the second grace. The law was given through Moses. Now notice the verbs here. First off, Moses mediated the giving of the law. 
I, I reference that because all Moses can take credit for was he was the human agent who stood in between God and man. You remember the people said, we don't want to get anywhere near that mountain, Moses. You go up. We're going to stay back here, else we die. And so Moses goes up and he mediates and he talks with God. And then he comes back down the mountain. He has the law and he gives it to the people. Moses didn't author the law. He didn't invent the law. But through Moses, the law was given to the people. He was a mediator. And that is a great honor. The law was given through Moses. I'm only highlighting the contrast because Jesus isn't just the one who gives the grace. But as we've already seen, Jesus is the source of the grace. Jesus is far superior. Moses had the great privilege and honor of giving the people on God's behalf the law. He went up on the mountain, he got the law, he came down, he gave it to the people. But that does mean, then, that the Mosaic law was a grace. And I know this can be hard for us to wrap our heads around. We can so often want to polarize law and grace. But I think that's what John is saying here. A grace replacing a grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. The law was a grace. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 4. There is no doubt the new covenant is superior. There is no question that what we have in Jesus Christ is is far superior than what the Mosaic law brought. But, man, if you were with us in our year-long study of Psalm 119, the law is awesome. It's wonderful. It's to be praised. Psalm 119, verse 164, the author writes, Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy 4. Here. Deuteronomy chapter 4. The law is a grace. God was not obligated to give the law to the people of Israel. God did not have to enter into a covenant with them at Sinai. Nothing forced him to do that. And the expectation is that the law is not only this wonderful thing, but even unbelieving pagans are supposed to see some of God's glory in it. Unbelieving pagans are expected to hear of Israel's law and marvel at its goodness. That's how good the law is. Was supposed to be. Look, look at look at Deuteronomy four, um, in verses five through eight. I turn back a page here. Okay, see, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear. All these statutes will say, so Moses is telling the people of Israel what they should expect the pagan nations, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hizzites, the Perizzites, what they're supposed to expect them to say when they hear of their law is this, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The nations weren't supposed to say, well, that's a really awful and terrifying law. They're supposed to be in awe, the wisdom in it. The law has so much grace in it. Our our small group is going through the book of Ruth. The law about leaving the gleanings along the edges of the field was a grace for people like Ruth and Naomi. The law's protection of women. The law's 
not respecting rank or privilege. One of the amazing things when you read through the law, a friend of mine pointed this out to me this week, is in many of the laws of the time, there's, there's one law for the rich and one law for the poor. No such thing exists in Israel's law. The, the restraint of excessive vengeance, the lex talionis, an eye for an eye, is, is saying you can't do more than was done to you. Someone took your hand, you can't take both their hands. Someone took your eye, you can't kill them. The protection for, for women, for the sojourner, protection for slaves. The law has so much restraining grace in it. So much. Let us not talk trash about the law simply because the new covenant is greater. Now, I, I do want to pause for a moment and confess. The Apostle Paul does have some things to say about the law, especially in Galatians and Romans 7, that, that can lead you to think, man, this law is bad. He'll talk about the law caused him to die. But I think two things. We don't, in the ABF, we can take some time to go there. But for right now, I'll just say this. I think whatever negative things Paul says about the law, two things. In Galatians particularly, he's concerned about the law wrongly applied as a means of justification. The law wrongly approached as something by which you might be acceptable to God. And then he makes some really strong statements, if that's what you're trying to do with the law. But that's not what the law is designed for. But despite that, in Romans 7, he says in verse 12, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Romans 7, 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. The law was good. It's a grace. Now, your next point, the Mosaic law had limitations. It was imperfect. Turn, turn to the other end of your Bible to Hebrews 8. Hebrews chapter 8. It had weaknesses. The author of Hebrews goes so far as to say it has faults. In Hebrews 8, the same theme we have in our text, that Jesus brings something better, Jesus brings something greater, better, more excellent, greater, is is the theme word in Hebrews. Jesus' ministry, Jesus' priesthood, Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' covenant is better. That's that's Hebrews. Hebrews 8, 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent as than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant, that's Moses, had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second, but he finds fault when he says, and he quotes Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are to come and declares the Lord, and I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And he goes on to tell you, say what's better and what's superior about the new covenant. So, so you can say biblically, the, the Mosaic law had faults, had limitations. What we have is superior. But despite the fact that what we have is superior, it, it, it does not stop the Mosaic law being anything but a gracious gift of God to the people of Israel. Civilly, giving them a government, protecting them with the laws about, about contagions, just biologically protecting them, and showing them the holiness of God in, in the temple worship, in the sacrificial system teaching them how holy God is and how careful one must be to approach him. All that's grace. God didn't have to tell them that. Now, we're not under the law. 
we, we, we are under the grace Christ brought, but the law is a grace. The law is good. The law is wonderful. We should agree with what Moses says the nations will say when they hear of it. Let's not look down our nose at the law. We're not under the law, but the law was great. The law was given through Moses. Now, here we get our contrast. Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. Three points here. One, Jesus Christ is the source of this new grace. Jesus Christ is the source of this new grace. Notice the verbs change. The law was given through Moses. All Moses can take credit for is he gave it to the people for God. Grace and truth literally came to be through Jesus Christ, which links back to verse 16. From his fullness, we've received a grace replacing a grace. The grace that Jesus brings, he's not just the messenger of. He's actually the source and author of as well. The grace came to be through Jesus, and it came found its source in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the source of this new grace. And the grace that replaces the Mosaic law is typified as grace and truth. So now, now turn back to Exodus. Turn back to Exodus. Um, let's go back to the, the giving of the law and the contrast that John is making. The law had limitations, right? I mentioned that. And one of the limitations in the law is found at the end of chapter 33. Reminds you again, Moses first intercedes to the people that God would not kill them all. He would not destroy them. The Lord says, okay, I am going to chasten them, but I won't, I won't utterly destroy them. And then Moses pleads that his glory would not depart, but he would go up in their midst. And the Lord says, okay, and we get a tent of meeting. And then Moses' third request, show, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And, and look what the Lord says in chapter 33. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I pass by and then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. Well that's one of the limitations of the Mosaic law. Even as the law mediated and set up a relationship between God and his people. We see that under the giving of the law Moses could see the afterglow and again, not to try to minimize that, that was such a great thing that when he came down from the mountain, Moses in turn was glowing, and the people asked him to put a veil on because it was creeping them out. So, so you don't magnify the grace of Jesus by denigrating this. This was awesome. This was amazing. This was marvelous grace of God that the creator would speak to his rebellious creation in such a way. That he would not kill everyone who worshipped the golden calf, but would listen to Moses and would give him the Ten Commandments again and speak with Moses and send him back to the people and dwell in their midst. We don't, we don't magnify Christ's grace by denigrating this, but we do recognize the limitations. Show me your glory. I can only show you so much, otherwise you'd die. 
God's veiled glory, here's your blank, is now revealed by Jesus. I made this argument last week, and I'll I'll do it again now, that when Moses does go up on the rock, when God calls him up, and he shows him what glory he can see, he does it by declaring his name. And, and, and biblically, God's name, a person's name, is their character, who they are. That, that's when if you believe in Jesus' name, in, in 112, I think, or 113 in John, it's not Jesus' name as a magic phrase. Rather, it's who he is, his person, who you understand him to be. Well, here, look at 34, 6, and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed... This is when Moses is up on the mountain. He's in the cleft of the rock. He walks by. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. That The two words that jump out in this section as God declares his glory, what glory Moses can see, is abounding in chesed, in steadfast love, in gospel love, or you could say in grace, and faithfulness. Faithfulness, fidelity, trustworthiness, or you could say truth, grace and truth. I think when he typifies the glory of God as being full of grace and truth, and the grace that Jesus brought contrasted with Moses as grace and truth, it's referencing this. The same glory that Moses could only see some of the afterglow of, we have seen in Jesus. It's the same grace God brought to to us in his son, the word. God's veiled glory is now revealed by Jesus. On the one hand, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. And, and there's a sense in which greater. Dia Carson says, grace and truth par excellence. He, he can be a little pretentious at times, but so can I, so that's okay. Um, God's veiled glory is now revealed in Jesus. And ultimately, when we considered this last week, but I think it's worth repeating, that glory is most clearly seen in the cross. Again, if you're still in Exodus, look at verse 6 and 7. This had to be perplexing to the Israelites who read this. God says, okay, here's, here's what bit of my glory you can handle. I abound in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? How how does that work? How do you forgive, but you don't let guilty people go? And just as his keeping steadfast love is generational for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sin, so is his not forgiving, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Both of these wings of his glory get elaborated. They're both... Full, complete, extensive. That's, that's what Moses and Israel could handle there. And, and for us, it makes more sense because we, we, we live on this side of the cross. We, we live on this side of seeing. Here's how perfect justice and perfect mercy meet 
neither one canceling the other out, right? Because on the cross, your sins are not overlooked. On the cross, the wicked things you and I have done, God didn't look the other way. He didn't let the guilty go free. He crushed the son on our behalf. So we can say amen of the Lord. He does not clear the guilty, but he does fully punish sin. But also on the cross, we can see, is he not full of abounding, overflowing, and steadfast covenant love? Does he not forgive sins? The cross makes sense of these, which is, I think, in part why the, the, the covenant bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus, the grace brought to us by Jesus is greater in, for one reason, because it more clearly reveals God's character. We can read this in Exodus 34 and make a bit more sense of it, I think, than the Israelites could. Whereas I imagine the Israelites may have thought, man, God's greater than me. Apparently he forgives and forgives and forgives and he doesn't let guilty people go free. And I'm not entirely sure all that works, but Amen, hallelujah. We, we can see that a bit more clearly, can't we? And so we can see that glory more clearly. I think that's part of what's going on. God's glory seen clearly in the cross of Christ. Which brings us then, if you turn back to John, to verse 18. Closing out the prologue. Keep your finger here, though, in Exodus, because we're going back one more time. One more time. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now in Exodus 33, 11, if you're there, we read that, and I've, I've talked to people who have been confused about this. How does John say no one is seeing God at any time? Exodus 33, 11, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. When Moses returned again in the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And, and so Moses would meet, this is where the tent of meeting shows up. The tabernacle, which corresponds to Jesus pitching his tent, tabernacling with us. But it's in the exact same chapter, chapter 33, that we're told, you can't see my glory and live. I think if you just read Exodus, that whatever it meant that Moses spoke with God face to face, Moses did not see God's, and here's your blank, unmediated glory. Unmediated glory. The text is clear. The same chapter that says Moses saw God face to face is the exact same chapter that says, you cannot see my glory and live. Um, the other reference in Deuteronomy, Israel was said by Moses in Deuteronomy 5 to, to see God face to face. And we know they huddled half a mile away at the base of Sinai while Moses went up on the mountain. It means they had a direct encounter with God. It, it meant that God didn't speak to Moses through dreams. He, he, he spoke to Moses directly, but Moses didn't get to look upon God in his glory. He would have died so again, this, we're reminded of this passage here. No one has seen God at any time. That was one of the limitations under the Mosaic Law. Moses spoke with God face to face, but Moses cannot see God's unmediated glory. And then the prologue closes with this. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Three, three quick points. First, Jesus is the unique son who is himself God. Some of your translations here vary. The word monogenes, sometimes translated only begotten, or as I argued last week, one of a kind, unique. It, here it's not the only begotten son. It's the monogenes theos, God. The unique, one of a kind God. 
who is at the Father's side. Another strong declaration of the deity of Jesus. Jesus is the unique son who is himself God. Further now, we find where he currently resides. At the end of John's gospel, Jesus will ascend. Where is he right now? He is at the Father's side. The unique, the monogenes God, who is at the Father's side. Which again informs us, again, of, of this loving, intimate fellowship Jesus shares with the Father. What, what, if, if you're worried that we're setting up polytheism here, that somehow God the Father is threatened by God the Son. No, as you read the gospel, you see it's the Father's plan that Jesus is fulfilling. It's the Father's purpose that Jesus might be glorified. And they exist in perfect harmony. Jesus is nestled in his Father's side, as it were. This is the same word, same word picture that, that John, the gospel writer, so relishes in in the Last Supper. John 13, 23, we read, One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. It's a picture of intimate fellowship. That's where Jesus is right now. He's at the Father's side. And the problem posed, this is another way I think of showing the grace replacing a grace. We, we see in Exodus 33 and 4, 34, there's this limitation. You can't see my glory and live. Oh, we see some of the glory. We learn some of God's character. We learn some of what he's like. We see some of his purposes. And yet, the full revelation of Jesus Christ, what Jesus does in addition is that Jesus himself is the fullest revelation of God to man. And this, this verse is jaw-dropping. You, you may have heard of exegetical preaching before, or expository preaching. Well, that ek or ex in the front of both of those words is the same ek or ex that's in the front of exodus, and it means to draw out, to lead out. So expository preaching is preaching that ideally what I'm doing is not putting in my own thoughts, but hopefully if I'm doing it right, if God's giving grace, if I'm being faithful, I'm drawing out the meaning of the text, right? That's what I'm doing. I'm expositing the text of God's word, trying to explain, bring out the meaning. That's what Jesus is said to do of God the Father here. Uh, I think some translations even say translated, explained, related, communicated, something like that. And that is astounding. Because in the context with, with Exodus 33 and 34 in the backdrop, show me your glory. You, you can't see my glory and live. I can only give you this much. No one has seen God at any time. The unique, the monogenes God at the Father's side, he has exposited, translated, explained, communicated him. Whoa! And this sets up some of the remarkable things Jesus says. In John 14, Last Supper, right? We'll close and we'll do our closing song in just a moment. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. Kind of reminds me of Moses. Show me your glory. Show us the Father and it's enough for us. Well, I'm glad Philip would be satisfied if he just saw the Father. That would be good enough for him. He's, you know. <laughs> show, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. You think? Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
No Israelite would be so bold as to claim, I've seen God the Father. Jesus says that. So this should prep us for our study. John puts in Jesus' mouth, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What we're about to do in the next 21 chapters of John's gospel is is the camera's going to stay right on Jesus 99% of the time, following him along. We're going to see Jesus. And John's telling us that in seeing Jesus, we are understanding and communicating who exactly God is. Whoa. That's what is in store for us. That's what's closing this prologue. It begins with, when we, when we consider, what does it mean Jesus is the word? He's a communicative agent. He's a self-expression. This is the one through whom finally we can know God most fully and perfectly. That's why Jesus can say, no one comes to the Father but through me. The author of Hebrews begins his epistle in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 contrasting the superiority of the revelation in Jesus with exactly these words. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in Son. And so, we should expect to see and learn more fully than anything revealed in the law who exactly God is. The limitation that Moses had, we don't have. As we stare at and gaze at Jesus, we should come to know who the Father is. We should expect and prepare ourselves. And and you should come on Sunday morning asking God, show me your glory in your son. Because the seeing of that glory is is put side by side with receiving that grace. If if you want to receive, if you believe, I, I want to receive that grace of forgiveness. I want to receive the grace shown perfectly on the cross then you also need to be one who's seen glory and beauty in it. Because John links those together. We've seen his glory, for we received grace from his fullness. That's, that's what he says, linking 14 and 16. And so if that is who you are, prepare to be marveled and amazed at the glory of God in Jesus. And if you're here and you're, just, you're not sure if that's you, then ask God to, to show you that grace and that glory. That you too might see And you too might receive the grace. Let's have a word of prayer and I'll call the worship team up. Lord God, we marvel at the grace we've received. Um, you, You gave a grace at Sinai to your people when you revealed yourself to them and gave them your law and your word. But Lord, you have given us an even greater grace in sending your son. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see and behold his glory that we might receive his grace from his fullness, the grace perfectly revealed at the cross where your wrath and your mercy reign supreme. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.